as the word is brought forth this morning. Lord, we come to you this day grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather together to sit at your feet and to hear from your word. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our minds with your thoughts and take our our cold hearts and warm them to your presence and the reality of who you are. And help us to see this story like we've never had before. Take our wills and bend them to yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire. With love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're in a series entitled Encounters with the Risen Jesus. And we're going to be in this for a good part of the next six weeks. Um, Next week... It's the story of the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and Sean's going to be preaching because I'm going to be down the hall. I've been invited to preach to our Baptist friends because they have no idea what an Anglican is. They will admit that to us. They're like, what are you, Protestant? Really? You know? And so I'm going to go tell them the Anglican story, things you have heard over and over from me ad nauseum. They're going to hear afresh for the first time. So uh, Sean's going to preach next week, and then I've invited Pastor Dave Skelton in two weeks to come tell us the Baptist story, because you think you know, but when you think Baptist, what do you think of? Legalism, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, right? All the things that Baptists are associated with, but if you get to know these people, they're, they're just dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they're gonna, he's going to tell us the Baptist story. And, and, and look, we know where we differ with one another. We've spoken about that before. But the reality is, in this building on Sunday mornings, we're one church with two expressions. And so it gives us an opportunity to come together because we're going to be doing some common ministry together in the years ahead. So we thought this was a good idea. So, but for today, we're going to look at this well-familiar story of the... Um, Thomas, as we know as Doubting Thomas, which I think is unfair. You know, yeah, he's the most memorable doubter in the Bible, but, and he's kind of stuck with it, I guess. But there's no evidence in the scriptures that Thomas didn't love Jesus less than any of the other disciples. There's no evidence that he was not as committed to Jesus as the other disciples. He just had some skepticism. He just had some struggles with belief. And which, who among us can say we haven't had struggles with unbelief at times in our walks with Christ? So what can we learn? Does Thomas give us any help? I have found he does. Because when life does take a turn, even though we believe in the resurrection, that may not be enough. Because for me, when on the last exam of Kim's undergraduate at the University of Maryland, she comes home to find her father, 47, dead on the floor, you find maybe the resurrection isn't as consoling, maybe isn't as empowering or as life-transforming as I and my rector was telling me that. Thomas helps us all, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, in your journey with Christ. 
today. And what we discover in this passage is the nature of doubt, the nature of true inquiry, the nature of true confirmation, because that's what Thomas wants, is con confirming the facts, and the basis of true confirmation. All right? Four things. We're going to learn the nature of doubt, the nature of true inquiry, the nature of true confirmation, and the basis for that true confirmation. Let's look at those together. First, the nature of doubt. Well, why was Thomas so skeptical that he would say, if I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it? Why? Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, and we're speculating, but by looking at Thomas, I think we can see ourselves and why we're skeptical at some times. Maybe Thomas, you know, if he took the Myers-Briggs test, those of you who've ever taken Myers-Briggs, how many of you have ever taken the Myers-Briggs personality? Most of us have, right? I'm an ESTJ. Surprise, right? You know? Um, but if Thomas were to take it, I, I'm sure Thomas was an S. You know, uh, intuitive as opposed to intuitive. Sensing rather than intuiting. Uh, intuitive is more on perception and instinct. Sensing information is more on cold, hard facts. You want to know the evidence. And it seems that Thomas, when he says, unless I see in, my, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side, I will never believe unless. Well, another possibility is that Thomas is skeptical of the supernatural. Yes, he's seen Jesus do all those miracles. Yes, he's seen amazing things. But dead people just don't rise from the dead, people. Right? Okay? I mean, the supernatural doesn't happen very often in our lives. There's a whole movement yesterday. There was the March for Science, led by Bill Nye, the science guy in Washington. <laughs> it's the whole belief in naturalism, that the universe is a closed system. In city, there was one in Cleveland, you know? And if I'm sure if you were to go take a survey, hey, do you believe Jesus physically died, arose from the dead, I'll bet you most of those marchers would have said no. Because, quite frankly, it's kind of difficult to believe. We get that. Okay? And so, the next thing that maybe Thomas was dealing with in his doubts is, maybe he just didn't want to let, be let down again. Yeah, I hear you, fellas, but I just don't buy it. Which one of us have ever had a, a, a loved one or a dear friend who was really, really sick and had a diagnosis that they weren't going to make it. And for months and months and months we prayed, but you came to the conclu conclusion finally that they weren't going to make it. And then all of a sudden, some well-meaning friend or family member comes to you and says, hey, I was on the interwebs and found a mystery treatment in Geneva, Switzerland. And the typical reaction when you hear something like that is, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to get my hopes up. I just can't deal with it anymore. So I believe Thomas was one of these, and I think no matter where you are this morning, and I don't care who you are, there's hope for you in this story. So let's look at the nature of what true inquiry looks like from Thomas's life, okay? That's the, the basis of doubt. Now let's look at the nature of true inquiry. For throughout the week, 
the disciples have been telling Thomas what? We have seen the master. We've seen Jesus. And Thomas says, unless, you know, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to believe it until I see him. But I imagine, remember, there's seven days in between. This happened on the eighth day, which had been Sunday the following week. All right? So this is a week from Resurrection Sunday. So here we are today, this morning, symbolically. And Thomas has been hearing for the last seven days, we've seen the master. We don't care what you say, Thomas. We've seen him. And they've been telling him this. And the reality is there's a sense that Thomas and we are in the same spot. Because he had access to what you and I had access to. The eyewitness accounts. Thomas's eyewitness accounts were from people who were alive. Ours are not. We have, however, the same eyewitnesses. You know? They're written down for us in the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, Matthew and John are in this group right here. Peter is there who gave his story to Mark. And Luke was Paul's secretary. But the reality is these are eyewitness accounts of what happened. And for those seven days, they were trying to convince Thomas, I'm sure, and he wouldn't buy it. Now, some of you who went to college previous to the 70s were told that the New Testament documents were legends written a long time before the events that they describe. But between that time and now, we've had enormous amounts of scholarship that actually demonstrate that the Gospels do not actually have the marks of fiction. Rather, they have the marks of oral history bearing eyewitness testimony. The way in ancient times you can verify the accuracy of your account is that you would name eyewitnesses who had seen the things that you were talking about, and those eyewitnesses were alive, so that they could go actually go and verify them. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus rose, appeared to 500 people, which, by the way, is difficult to fake. All right? Uh, he says, basically, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Paul couldn't write this if there were no eyewitnesses in mass. It's a legal and historical investigation. And he comes to Thomas and says, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. In other words, Thomas, you don't have to see me in order to believe this way. You have the eyewitness accounts, Thomas, all week. You should have listened to your boys. How many of you have witnessed events in history that were actually recorded for you in your history book? Nobody. All right? You believe the eyewitness testimony of historical events. Why wouldn't you believe this one? That's what Jesus is saying. You are in, the nature of true inquiry is that we look at the eyewitnesses. Therefore, for yourself, spend some time every day, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Use the daily office. Whatever Bible reading tools you use, spend some time because it's true. Inquire of the eyewitnesses and see how they stand up. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So therefore... 
having established that, the nature of doubt and the nature of true inquiry, what's the nature of true confirmation that would elicit a confession that says, my Lord and my God, verse 28. Because for a Jewish person to say, my Lord, is one thing. But for a Jewish person to look at a living person and call the living person, my God, that, my friends, is the highest confession of faith in all the Bible. The biggest doubter has now become the biggest believer. We have true confirmation as a follower of Christ by looking at the meaning of the glorified wounds of Christ. Because Thomas claimed that he wanted to touch his wounds, right? He says, unless I touch them, I won't believe. Jesus appears and says, go ahead. Put your hands here, Thomas. Does Thomas do it? Uh -uh, he doesn't. Immediately, he, he goes to his confession, my Lord and my God. I think there's three reasons for why. I believe that Thomas thought that the wounds were mainly the evidence that Jesus Christ is alive. But when Thomas actually saw Jesus, they were evidence of something far more powerful in Thomas's life. Why would the resurrection body still have the scars? I mean, when I get my resurrection body, I don't want the imperfection still with me. You know? And I'm sure you can name yours as well. I hope I'm six foot five, you know? You know, about 250, and I can run a four, five, 40, you know? <laughs> you know, you can go on, right? You know? But Jesus' glorified body still has scars. Why the wounds? Paul, I think, gives us a glimpse in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, at the end of time, God will give us a glory that will console us even in our suffering. Now, that would be great enough. But I think what this means is, First, number one, that our biggest wounds in our lives have been that which has driven us back to God. If you believe in the resurrection, your fear dissolves. You're not afraid of situations like you used to. And there's a joy that's within you, even in the midst of tough times. And if it takes something bad in your life to drive you to that, if it leaves you a wound that doesn't necessarily go away, and yet your life is inexpressibly richer. It's a glorified wound. Secondly, when Jesus sees my wounds, you, you know, you think about it. You know, Thomas is, when he looks at Thomas and says, look at my wounds, Thomas has seen these before. He's, he's one of the disciples. He saw him stricken, afflicted. And when they saw him hung upon the cross, they thought it was over. That Jesus... The cross was ruining their lives. But this was the end of it. And Jesus shows up and says, guess what, Thomas? The things you thought were ruining your life are actually the things that are saving it. It's my wounds upon the cross for you, Thomas, paying your penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven and restored in a relationship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, and be saved. The things you thought were ruining your life, Thomas, have saved you. And third, when Paul says that our sufferings are preparing a weight of eternal glory, it's like a newsflash across those cable news channels. Newsflash, 
Newsflash. Now hear this. It means that the greatest and terrible things that have happened to you when you believe and rest in Jesus Christ will only make your eventual joy in eternity greater. Your eventual joy and glory greater. It's the ultimate defeat of evil in your life, ladies and gentlemen. So Jesus is not only saying to Thomas, but to you as well this morning. Look at my wounds. Look at the cross. For these wounds are actual evidence that I love you. The resurrected Jesus is not coming down and saying, hey, look, Ma, look what I can do. All right? I can rise from the dead. No, this is, look how much I love you, Thomas. And Thomas, I'm sure, didn't need to reach out and touch him. Because he thought, oh my God, this is how much you love me. Which bursts the confession, my Lord and my God. So what's the basis for true confession? We establish the nature of doubt, the nature of inquiry, the, the, the nature of true confirmation of facts and what we need to know. But what's the basis for this? How can we do this? Because everyone who comes to Jesus and wants to believe in Jesus, including myself, tend, when we come to Jesus, to have conditions, like Thomas did. You never go to Jesus for Jesus' sake. You carry some conditions with you. Yeah, he's wonderful and great, but I really want something, which means you have conditions. And they're typically negative conditions. I'll come to you, Lord, only if this happens. Eternal life and all that, but I don't want it to hurt my career. I don't want it to affect my relationships. I want to keep my boyfriend, my girlfriend. I don't know. You basically say, I'll come to you and believe in you unless. It's exactly what Thomas is doing. When Jesus is appearing, he's basically saying, drop your conditions. For when you bring your conditions, what you are really saying is, I will love you if. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus loved you unconditionally. He didn't look down from heaven and say, nah, I'm going to find a more worthy people. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sees all of our flaws and still dies for each and every one of us and pursues us. Isn't that amazing? He didn't have to come on this eighth day. He could have dragged it out a lot longer if he wanted to. But he approaches and pursues Thomas at this time. That's what God does, and that's what God does to you and me. Wonderful illustration of that is in the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, in The Horse and His Boy. The hero is Shasta. Shasta wants to get to Narnia in the worst way. So he rides his horse all through the countryside to get to Narnia. And over and over again, he gets attacked or pushed or confronted by a lion of all things. This lion comes, and he's scared to death, and the horse takes off. 
over and over in his journey, and he finally arrives in, in Narnia, and what does he see? A lion. But it's Aslan who reminds Shasta all along, even though through your suffering, Shasta, I was there. I was the one nipping at your heels. I was the one calling you on, and I was with you every step of the way because this is how much I love you. That's our God. Pursuing us, welcoming our doubts, calling us to himself, asking us to drop our conditions. J.I. Packer, in conclusion, writes this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge on him depends upon his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention is distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. This is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking care, taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. This is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of that which is worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me that the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Ladies and gentlemen, there's someone in your life who's looked into your life and has unconditionally loved you. How can you look at him and not unconditionally give yourself to him? Take your questions to Jesus. You know, he's better than I am. I'll take your questions after the service, but you know, he's a lot better than I am. All right? Take your inquiries and listen to those eyewitnesses. Look at his wounds. Look at the cross and ponder his great love for you and drop your conditions and believe in this way. I'm always marveled. You know, we all memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but I really feel bad for verse 10. You know, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not a result of works so no one can boast. What's verse 10? So you may walk in the works that he's called you to walk in. American Christians, we believe in salvation by grace alone, but we, we live it, and people start to notice it. Don't tell Kimmy, but there's a person in the library who walked up to her and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? She said, yeah, you know, I am. She goes, there's just something different about you. You know, I said, honey, that, that's a great affirmation that you're shining the light and salt there. Keep it up. Keep going. You're doing the same things too. Keep praying that God will use you wherever you're found. But when we believe, it shows. Dear ones, let us take our questions, listen to the eyewitnesses, look at his wounds, ponder their great meanings, and drop our conditions. And let's be mighty like Thomas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word, this mighty giant who is Thomas. We pray, Lord God, that you would move mightily in each and every one of our lives, no matter where we're found this morning. 
And may we go further in and further up in you, Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.